Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be? And thanks y'all for joining us. So let me introduce Chris Lahr, who's going to run the conversation tonight. It's going to be a great hour together. Um, so Chris... <laughs> Got so many stories. I don't know where to start, but yeah. we went to we went to Eastern University together. Uh, actually, Chris Chris is one of the first folks that started taking me um, outside the suburbs of Philadelphia and down into the streets and um, into the parks and meeting folks where they were at. Sometimes in alleyways or under the bridges, and people that changed my life. Folks that really, in a lot of ways, uh, helped give birth to the simple way the community that. Um, Chris and I both uh, helped shape over the last 25 years, so we've we've been friends with a lot of uh, stories and um, and and I, I think for to start with, he's out in Fort Wayne, Indiana, right now, um, and I think what you're going to hear tonight is also about the importance of place, like a theology of place, an idea of like going. Let's not just talk about like what the scripture meant 2000 years ago, but let's talk about what it looks like to live this out in our time and place. And you look at all these proper nouns in the gospel, um, like the, the towns, Capernaum and um, Nazareth and Bethany and these places, and they were real places. And in fact, I went to Capernaum, Chris, you might've been there too. I don't know, Sharon, if you've been there, but it's like 400 people live there. And you're like, this is Capernaum, like this is iconic, you know, place. And yet it's a reminder that a lot of these towns are not unlike, you know, Fort Wayne. They're, we've all, they've all got their, their beauty and their funk and y'all are helping us understand, I think the gospel, but also through the lens of your life and your context. And that's what um, Sharon's book's about. But Chris, you know, as you introduce her, tell us a little bit about you. You've had all kinds of stuff going on in Fort mm -hmm. Wayne and uh, it's been really, really, been really great to see, man. Well, it's been very interesting because, you know, I lived in Philly for almost 20 years and I love Philly. Never thought I'd leave Philly. And, uh, you know, people don't go to places like Fort Wayne on purpose. You know what I mean? Like God calls people to Fort Wayne. People, you know, people go to California like, hey, I'm going to California or I'm going to go to you know, name your spot. But they don't go to Fort Wayne unless you get called by God. And then that's the theme that I see going throughout. You know, and at first, you know, it's just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. But this place is great. Like mm. it's you know, it's bigger than Capernaum, uh, but it, it, it's really been a place that we've really um, developed some really good friendships and, uh, uh, and and it's really been surprising, you know, because I do all that work with Timoteo in Philly and I love the football and things like that. Um, here, I've been working with a, a local school called Southside and a, a local organization called Alive Community Outreach. And we've been working with uh, youth to, to bring about peace. In a, they're called the peacemakers. And so we've been working with them to bring about a peaceful environment in the schools. And, uh, and, and they're making such an impact. These kids are amazing, right? I mean, they're making such an impact that this district is seeing it. And they're beginning to want us to bring it to all five high schools. And um, 
And then we had a little movement happen amongst the elderly here. We call them the peace grannies and grampies. And we've had they show up to schools and they and they and they're beginning to uh, serve the kids and love on the kids. But what's beautiful is it comes from a ver- three diverse congregations, and really there's others from other congregations starting to show up, and uh, and, and they're really uh, beginning to to go deeper as we go into the six principles of nonviolence. It's supposed to be a six week training with these peace grannies and grampies that turn into seventeen weeks starting tomorrow. And, and they're getting deep about issues of race and history and some of these things. We had Sharon come in and share with the group and things like that. And so God seems to be doing a real work uh, at a deeper level with folks and, and uh, taking folks deeper in a lot of things. And, um, you know, and just as th- th- you heard the phrase, what good comes from Nazareth? <laughs> some people may say, well, what good can come from Fort Wayne? And I'd say Sharon Tubbs is one of those goodnesses happening. Like I was, you know, I'm doing some studies and I'm doing histories of, of Fort Wayne in the area and kind of looking at historical racism, how it, how it shapes contemporary racism or understanding of that. And my wife, she got me this book. I think it's on Martin Luther King Day. They got daddy. And I looked at it and I said, oh, this looks cool. You know, amongst all my other books, I'll just put it at the end. But let me look at the intro first. I started reading the intro. Next thing you know, I'm sitting down reading the whole daggum book. And it was great. And so uh, I've been sharing it with as many people as I, I know. And, and, and I'm glad you're, you're taking her serious because they got daddy's a great book. And the whole world needs to know something good comes from Fort Wayne. So uh, so with that, uh, I wanted to just introduce Sharon and, and maybe she could give us a little overview of Maybe her journey to Fort Wayne, because uh, I don't think she was called to Fort Wayne. She had no choice. She was uh, been here a long time. Like, but uh, but 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 she stays. And uh, talk a little bit about your, your time in Fort Wayne, and, and kind of give us an overview of the book and and what is they got daddy. So, Chris, I think a few people might take issue with your description of the great grand city of Fort Wayne, Indiana, the second largest city in it's growing the on me. state. I love it now. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a Fort Wayne native born and raised. Uh, however, I left the city uh, and left the state after um, graduating college with a degree in journalism. And so left to pursue some uh, my career as a newspaper reporter and editor. And actually was called back by yeah, God. From where? from where? Where did you go? From Florida. Yeah. And where did you go from other Florida. than that? Um, uh, Philly. The Philly, oh, New Jersey oh, area. Yes. Right I know there. that's your thing. That's yeah, your thing. I know, yes. I know. I know. God Philly, calls South people Jersey because they just want to stay. You know what I mean? So <laughs> sorry about that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so I've been in both places. Um, right. And that's pretty much how I lived out my adult life. Um, But I want to say, we're saying this now that a lot of people don't feel called or don't feel um, excited about living in Fort Wayne. But one generation previous to me, um, my parents actually did yearn to come to Fort Wayne from the South, doing what was called the Great Migration. There were so many uh, people of color, African-Americans, who migrated to the Midwest, to cities like Fort Wayne and to the West and to other parts of the North uh, from the southern states. There's being Alabama. And that was how I got to Fort Wayne. 
because people did want to come to Fort Wayne. And I'm sure there are many people who uh, who uh, have been born and raised here and love the city uh, and are coming to the city. So we know all of that was in jest. But the book, They Got Daddy, came to be because I was wondering about some of the things that happened in Alabama concerning my grandfather. And uh, I wondered that as a young child, it started when I was on the couch with my mother um, and we were watching the news right here in Indiana. And a story came on the news with uh, some Ku Klux Klansmen. And they were parading across the screen because they had gotten some kind of a permit to march in some area of Indiana. And I was a little girl in elementary school and I wondered, okay, how does that still exist? I had seen the KKK in documentary films and those types of things. And I had white teachers at my elementary school whom I liked and counselors and white friends in class. And I couldn't believe that those folks were still around. And I asked my mother, what's up with this, basically? And she said, yes, they're still here. In fact, they got daddy. And so that phrase never left me because I wondered what that meant, what happened to my grandfather. Make a long story short, um, what happened was he had sued a white sheriff's deputy in 1954, Alabama, after the deputy T-boned him in a car accident. Uh, that accident left my grandfather lame in one arm and uh, unable to work as a well driller, which was his main source of income. It was a well driller, a part time preacher and a sharecropper. The well drilling, of course, was where he got his income to support the family of 13 children and his wife, Margaret, as we call her Big Mama. And so he sued for damages uh, and never was compensated. And so the day before trial for the civil case, he was kidnapped by white supremacists, uh, which were pretty sure uh, uh, were, the, were the Klan because they had a heavy presence in Uniontown, Alabama at that time. And so my journey in researching this book was basically a journey to learn more about my grandfather, what happened to him and why. And so that is the content and the context of They Got Daddy. OK, uh, so on uh, page 24, you said uh, granddaddy's accident took me on a journey to discover yes. not just the truth of this, his story, but an essence of my own. How did the struggles that Negroes faced in the mid 20th century segue into my own battles as an African-American woman in modern America? Can you expound yeah. on that and even talk about the how the, the how you structured the book? I thought was really good. Yeah. Going. Yeah. Yeah. So when I started writing about my grandfather's story and researching it even before I started to write, um, I began to realize that. When I was writing his story, so many things came up about my story. It just began to make me reflect on some things. And there were moments while writing his story that I would just find myself in tears, thinking about some instance or some experience that I had had, maybe a microaggression growing up or some moment where I felt inferior I felt the pangs of racism in my own life. And I knew uh, that I would have to 
not only tell his story, but tell how that story lingered from generation to generation, how that story uh, impacted his children, my mother uh, and her brothers and sisters, my uncles and aunts, uh, and how that lingering racism filtered down to me. And so that's what I meant when I was telling his story, I began to see that his story was also my story in ways that I hadn't imagined at first. I didn't really know my grandfather that well. He died when I was seven years old. Uh, but before he died, my memories of him were of him having dementia. And so he was he had dementia. He was he had this arm that was hanging limp at his side that he couldn't use. And so he was somewhat of a scary figure to me as a, a small child. And so I wanted to know him. And as I began to know him, I began to even see some parts of him that were inside of me. And some of the fears that he experienced in terms of white supremacy and racism and feeling how people thought we were inferior, regardless of how we saw ourselves. Uh, I began to see some of those things in myself. Right, right. Um, so I, I think that kind of builds on this whole notion of cultural trauma. Yes. Right. And the, the ability to the history and car cultural trauma is rooted in, in history. And so you say that uh, cultural trauma describes the lasting effects of racism on African-Americans. And then you quote Jacqueline Clemens and said, when we consider that we are not only walking around with our own lived experience and traumas, but also those of our ancestors, we must slow down, take a hard look at our past to truly heal. We must address the cultural trauma that has always been there shaping perspectives from birth. Can you share yeah. more? What do you mean by cultural trauma and, and Expound on that a little bit. So cultural trauma is the traumatic event and the after effects that a group experiences. So in this instance, um, African-Americans, the cultural trauma experienced from the aftermath of, of slavery. Uh, we like to say or some people like to, to think and to say that, you know, that was in the past and it doesn't affect us anymore. Um, but it most certainly does. Because our ancestors, um, their bodies adjusted uh, to accommodate, to deal with the traumatic effects of slavery. And so when that happened, the responses that they uh, used to cope, that was passed down to the next generation during, during childbirth. And so that, tra that trauma was passed down from one generation to the next. And I began to study that uh, when I was reading this book. And, you know, that's why in the book, I go one chapter, pretty much, I'm talking about, you know, the, the research from my grandfather's story. And then the next, I talk about our family's journey as my parents migrated from Alabama to Indiana and how, you know, I perceived racism growing up. So all of that is interconnected. It's 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 there for us um, to process as we have grown older uh, and to think about and to truly use those memories and the experiences that our ancestors had and that we have had to heal. It wasn't until I began to 
think about some of the things that happened to me, think about some of the things that happened to my grandfather, that I really began to process racism and how it had affected me and how I can move forward in a better way. Yeah. And it makes me think this whole notion of, of trauma, racism, mm-hmm. trauma. Uh, I first discovered that in a book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menikin. It's just a phenomenal book. And, and in that book, he talks about white trauma, black trauma, mm-hmm. and blue trauma. And he talks about how racism isn't just about the stinking thinking, like somehow I think bad about you because of the color of your skin, but that racism is deeper than that. And it goes deep into our cultural beings through history and through that trauma. And, uh, and you know, and he, and he would say that like, you know, white trauma. We had the experience of the, the woman in the the the, the park it, it, in uh, New York when the guy, guy came up and said, put your dog up. And mm-hmm. she freaked out and she goes, there is an African-American male uh, coming out. And threat. All he did was say, put your dog up because that's the law. You know what I mean? And she freaked out. And it's almost like he talks about that kind of thing as, you know, maybe she was in a place of vulnerability because she's in a park by herself. But then she starts having these imagined, uh, you know, these images and that cultural trauma led to those overreactions to the point where she has to apologize and things like that. And then um, and then so I also think, that, you know, he talks about black trauma. And I think of George Floyd and how like when, you know, a cop comes to me, he says, give me your license registration. They did it to George Floyd. They came in with a gun and you mm-hmm. see the video, he come up with them and immediately that triggers that cultural trauma where now all of a sudden he's in a fight, flight or freeze mode. And people are like, well, people would just listen to the cops. But if you had that trauma, some people are going to fight, some people are going to flight. And so that's why there's the shootings and things like that. And then with the blue trauma, he talked about how Philando Castillo, you know, like he came up and, and everything was cool. The cop was cool and everything until the man said, hey, I have a gun. And then all of a sudden you could see him tense up. That trauma took over. And that's so often why there's when you have these police shootings, there's more than one shot. It's several shots, several going on and on and on. And so I, I think it's, you know, to just say you don't feel hatred towards somebody isn't mm-hmm. enough. That cultural trauma is in you. And if you don't identify and deal with it, it could lead to racist acts and things like that. And so uh, I also. And, yeah. Could, could I. Just interject for one moment, yes. just because I'm going to forget um, if I don't. So and I think there's a fine line between a traumatic response um, and in some cases a privileged response. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when you're talking about and I forget the, the name the woman in the New York park and the the guy with the dog and, and, and all of that. Did she really freak out because it was a black man or did she get upset because he had the nerve to enforce the rules upon her Mm -hmm. and she used uh, an old stereotype Mm -hmm. in order to punish him? That's a good point. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so what was that? Was she really feeling vulnerable and afraid of this man? Or was she just saying, okay, how dare he uh, assert this rule upon me as this white woman who is privileged and I should be able to do what I want. And so because he has done this, I know what I can do. I can call the police and say, there's a black guy here. 
Right, right. And he's going to get in trouble. And and I think and it could be traumatic, but I think there is also this issue of white privilege yes. um, and the white nationalism that so many um, Christians have adopted uh, and and begun to play into uh, under the disguise of feeling vulnerable or um, feeling um in danger when it's really just, yeah, vulnerability in terms of maybe I'm going to lose the privilege and the power right. that I've lived with for so long. But what's interesting, too, is when you think of white supremacy, you think mm-hmm. of them Charlottesville, you think of the dudes with the white hats and all this and that. But in yeah. reality, she wasn't that necessarily that we know right. of. You right. know? She was just an average woman that when it came down to it, she felt threatened or pushed back, she used that white privilege. And I think that sometimes people have that buried inside of them. And until you get to realize it and see it and feel it and understand it and identify it, it becomes part of your culture. And when you need to use it, you use it. And rather than being able to be reflective, they do that. And I think that's why it's so important in your book to be able to think about the history. You know, right. tell, tell a little bit about that that story of you in that, that predominantly white church where the man wow. said... Uh, uh, yeah, they, they don't, you shouldn't bring up historical racism. Can you remember that story? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I had, this was prior to obviously writing the book and I was speaking in front of, a a, a large, uh, audience at a church and, uh, there was a predominantly white church, but not all white, um, a church that had welcomed diversity and where, you know, it was a mega church where they, they had various speakers up. And so one day I, uh, for my assignment, I was doing a message about my grandfather. I had done enough research at that point that I felt comfortable sharing uh, his story. Um, And so I wanted to use the story as an example of how my grandfather overcame uh, internally the things that happened to him and how he was able to continue to preach about the goodness of God despite these horrible things that happened uh, and the racism that he experienced. And so I told a story and I felt really good about it. That evening, uh, one of the leaders in the church did contact me and said that he'd felt uncomfortable with me sharing this story because it made him and others in the church feel guilty. Mm. Um, who were white. And so uh, I, I really, you know, I challenged him a little bit with that. But in retrospect, I wish that I had taken it a bit further in pursuing some conversations around that because he I don't think he was alone. I think there were people in leadership that wanted me to to know this, that perhaps I should not bring up this issue of race um, so bluntly from the stage. So what um, would you have liked to have said to him? I think, well, I did say things to him. I did. I challenged him in terms of our, I said, are you saying that I cannot talk about race? I should not talk about race. And he said, no, I'm not saying that. He said, I just wanted you to know how we felt about this. Okay. Uh, What I'm saying is I wish that I had pursued it after the phone call and uh, 
talked about how uh, as a group, um, we should really begin to process how we're going to present this issue of race in this diverse congregation. So. Right on, right. Uh, Shane did want me to tell everybody, if you have any questions for Sharon, uh, to go ahead and post them in the uh, meeting chat room and we will do our best to get to them. Um, and so we'll do that. Uh, yeah. So just thinking about that, that story, uh, there's a thing I call white amnesia, which is mm-hmm. like white people's conveniently forgetting some parts of history. Right. And not wanting to bring it up because it only brings up bad memories and things like mm-hmm. that. And, um, and and when I think about that, I think, you know, by doing that, then what you're doing is you're rejecting all the issues of trauma that we just talked about, because trauma culture, racially racism rooted in culture is rooted in history. And to forget those things is to to be able to ignore it is to be able to not be able to bring it up and then move, uh, move away from there. So um, white amnesia, bad thing. <laughs> it is a bad thing. Well, and and. And Chris, I wonder if that is even more pervasive in the church, mm-hmm. in religious circles or spiritual circles, because there's this thinking that, hey, we're all equal in the sight of God. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course we are. But are believers using that mantra to cover up the fact that they may not actually feel that way in reality? And so it's like, I, I don't think that this this church that I uh, had this experience where I had this experience is unique in any way, shape, form or fashion. I think that came out um, and has come out in recent years with white nationalism and how many people um, began to embrace perspectives that at one time would have been seen as racist. Uh, But now it's just fact. And um, I I think that this idea of white amnesia can be more acceptable in white church circles because we can say that we love everyone because that's what God tells us to do when in our hearts, it's not actually true. Right on, right on. Um, Let's talk about faith for a little bit here. Faith and forgiveness. Uh, God, you you wrote uh, God's promise of human equality prevails, even as history repeats itself with white supremacists, again, gaining credibility in America. The value of black lives seem to be minimized and immigrants of color are shunned by nation itself founded by immigrants. Israel Page's experience allows me, us, to understand how the loved ones of nine black murdered in 2015 at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, immediately forgave the proud racist shooter. Of course, they forgave him. They needed to forgive him. We all do. Talk about kind of faith and forgiveness and how it relates to this in your your book. Why do you you have to forgive? Like, I think, you know, if we don't forgive those those sins and those ills from the past, it becomes bitterness that festers within us. Um, so forgiveness is a must. Uh, I, but that doesn't mean that we forget. Right. And that's a crucial point. Um, forgiveness does not mean that I don't acknowledge 
what happened. And so, again, I think that too often in Christian circles, the idea that we just need to forgive and move on um, is used as an excuse to hide, uh, to circumvent the pervasive racism that is apparent still yet today. And so, yes, we want to forgive. We have to forgive. Those people in, in Charlotte had to forgive that racist person who came in and even killed their relatives. But that does not mean that we don't acknowledge that what happened was purely racist and that 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 is happening and increasingly um, occurring in our country today. Um, And when I say increasingly, I don't mean more so than the 1920s, but certainly um, it's it feels like it's beginning to be embraced more openly um, in our nation. Yeah. So I just want to make that in, point, Sharon, and, and say yeah. uh, that one of our our core leaders at Red Letter Christians is Reverend Sharon Risher, who um, her mother, Ethel, Miss Ethel Lance, was killed in that shooting and mm-hmm. her two cousins, her family members. And we did her book wow. uh, uh, during book club. It's called uh, Such for Such a Time as This. And she's mm-hmm. probably watching. She watches a lot of our book clubs, but she talks about that, the the how complex forgiveness is. And she said, uh, you know, I forgave Dylan Roof, not so he could sleep at night so that, but so I could sleep at night. And so that hatred didn't define me, right. That I didn't live into that revenge and resentment that uh, is powerful. And she talks about how offensive it was when she, (laughs) she heard her own sister say it earlier than she was ready to forgive. (laughs) So it's, I, I just thought that's, it's powerful because, uh, there's a lot of, I think, really important talk about um, especially black forgiveness and how quickly we want to look for folks just to forgive and forget, like you said. And there's a lot right. of people that are more concerned with the forgetting than the. Yes. So thanks for that. Yeah. 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 So I had to jump in there just to I give a little uh, shout out to Shane. Thank you, yeah. Shane. Yes. Sharon Risher. Yeah. Your sister. So several, <laughs> several years ago, Shane and I actually had a chance to go to uh, South Africa and yeah. uh, we we would really learn some stuff about Desmond Tutu and Ubuntu and and all this and that. But in that he he has a fourfold path of forgiveness, which I think is very powerful. And uh, you know it, it's it's I've seen white folk get up, you know, after George Floyd, I'm sorry for all slavery. All right, mm-hmm. let's move on. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> uh, wow, that was real deep repentance. You know, like and uh, uh, but in it he says, you know, there's fourfold. The first is to tell the story. Yeah. Got to tell the story, you know, it, it, and it's not the white amnesia, but it's being able to face history in all its goodness and all its ugliness and be able to tell the story. But the second part is to name the pain and to be able to mm-hmm. name that, which is, 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 is the hard part of it. And then the third part is forgive and to forgive isn't necessarily getting somebody off the hook. It's letting yourself off the hook. It's not it just, you know, this, sometimes, you know, we're free from it. And, and, and so sometimes with abusive situations and things like that, the abuser's not even thinking about you. You know, it's long gone, but that abuse is still real. It's still moving and, and abuse is still moving forward. And forgiveness allows you to kind of unhook some of that and to be able to begin to heal and begin to things. And then his final one is to reconciliation 
or release, which I yeah. think is very interesting because, you know, the ultimate goal is reconciliation. But sometimes we can't reconcile because the person's dead or the person doesn't want to reconcile, you know, mm-hmm. and so you have to release them. And, and, you know, and I think there's some people in my life that I've had to reconcile with and, and release, you know, and I'm yeah. always reconciling again. But uh, but I think forgiveness is is a deeper work, you know, in that and stuff. So. Yes. So, Chris, you when you were talking, um, you mentioned how one of the initial steps is to tell the story. And so that is exactly what I wanted to do with my grandfather's story with they got daddy Mm -hmm. was to tell his story, um, was to give voice to him in a way that had never been given before. Uh, because too many people or not many people had known what actually happened. Um, Like I said, when I began to research and find out some of the things that the twists and the turns that took place, uh, my mother and her siblings had forgotten many of the details because they were young when this took place. But it is a story. Every family has a story. Mm. It, It may not be this story. Uh, but there's some story in the family, um, many stories in the family that deserve to be told, deserve to be told to the next generation, um, deserve in some instances to be told uh, to the rest of society, um, to bring voice to those who went before us. And so that is what I was, that's what I tried to do here. And it's so moving that in telling my grandfather's story, I've had many people come and talk to me about how his story gave rise to their eagerness to tell their own stories and to acknowledge some of the things that they experienced and to really begin to heal from that. I had someone talk to me about um, being free or released from something that had happened in her life didn't have anything to do with my grandfather Mm. uh but in reading it it helped her to dig deep and to think about some of the traumatic things that happened in her life and to bring voice to that and to feel free about releasing that and so i think that's what they got daddy um has done for me and has done for others um, the they in they got daddy are people that I don't know. That's the they. You know how everybody always says, you know, they did this and they did that, and they mean either the government or the white man or what the whoever the they is. Okay. Right. Because we can't always identify the they that has done us wrong. The they may be structural racism, may be a systemic issue, a system, a structure that we really can't pinpoint individually, a law that has been embedded, um, privilege that has been accepted and, and embraced. And so these abstract concepts are those things that have begin to begun to be the they in our lives that have put us on the opposing end of uh, or the opposite side of justice and freedom and and relief in our in our lives. And so the that's what they is. We don't really know all the they involved in my grandfather's story, just like we don't know all the they involved in your story or, um, you know, Shane's story or Linda's story or what have you. 
But when we begin to look at those issues and process them authentically um, and to look at what they were and and how they've affected us today, uh, then that's when the healing begins. And that's when the forgiveness can begin. And that's when we can truly move forward as a nation, a diverse nation with people of various skin tones and ethnicities and backgrounds and can begin to work together and heal. Right on, right on. Yeah. And and I think about that, like just reflecting on telling the story and going back and things like that. uh, It kind of inspired me to kind of look at my own story. And, uh, and so I, I've spent, I get obsessive with things. And so I've discovered <laughs> the, uh, the 6,000 of my closest relatives in uh, genealogy. So I've been doing mm-hmm. genealogy for the last couple of months. And, and I found out that, um, you know, if you go back my generation, you had my mom and dad, that's two people, right? You had my grandparents, that's four, grades, eight, then 16. If you go back 20 generations, you add a million grandparents, Mm. crazy right if you go back 40 generations it's a trillion Mm -hmm. go back 50 generations it's a quadrillion people there hasn't even been a quadrillion people in the live in the world there's only been 117 billion so what happens it's called cousin loving it's people like it would basically you know at some point the genealogy goes like this but at one point they said that there's 80 percent of the folks my through my research were cousins first and second cousins, they got married. So the genealogy comes back down. And it, and there's some people that say that after like 50 generations, we all start having common ancestors and things like that, all of us and things like that. And when I looked at it, you know, I used to say, well, I'm from the North. I'm from the North. I'm from the South. I had people that fought in the Southern part of the war. People that fought in the Northern part of the war, every war there was, I was from you know, all these countries and things like that. And it really caused me to step back. You know, I, I literally had family members that had slaves and then I had <laughs> others who were Quakers that were abolitionists. And, you know, and so like really everybody is all of us, you know, and it really helped me realize that, that people are humans you know what I mean? And, and that gives me a little bit of grace for folks. But at the same time, it doesn't keep me afraid to look into history and, and also be a truth teller because we're all created in the image of God. No matter how funky we get sometimes, we still created in the image of God. Let's see. Uh, Shane said we got 20 minutes left. We may try to get a question or two. Uh, yeah. So if we have any questions on Facebook or anything like that, uh, feel free to shoot them this way. And uh Chris, one thing that um, I um, really found interesting while writing this book, I talk not I talk about what happened to my grandfather and how that lingered and, and filtered through the generations. I also talk about some of the happy times because I think that mm-hmm. uh, I know that African Americans have persevered and. Um, become a strong people because of our ability to bond together and overcome a lot of the racism that we have felt internally. And, you know, we've done that through family reunions and, you know, um, close-knit relatives. I, you know, when I was younger, I spent the night over my cousin's house and, you know, all of those things. And so there was always family story. There were always family stories that were passed down. Um, and talked about in front of funny stories. And a lot of that had to do with religion. Um, and so my grandfather, as I said, was a part-time preacher. 
And my grandmother was the first lady of the church in, in Alabama. And I, I talked in the book about some of the religious traditions in the black church. Mm -hmm. And I have found that um, a number of people often uh, Caucasian, our Caucasian and white brothers and sisters have talked to me about, wow, they didn't know anything about that and how the book kind of was an inside look into some things that they didn't understand, like shouting in the church. Um, and so in, you know, Baptist circles, um, in some Pentecostal circles, you know, women uh, might shout during a church service, could be a happy shout, could be a, a shout of anguish. Uh, and I remember with my mother being an usher in the black church when women would shout during the service. And it might be about something that she was going through uh, during that time in her life. And the women in the church and the men in the church knew to rally around that person and uh, that they might be going through something and to pray for that person. And that's something that is not as prevalent in today's uh, churches that I have seen, although it still exists. But these were behaviors that people of color adopted to cope with the pressures of living in an oppressive society, you know, um, with the pressures of, uh, you know, economic distress social distress, um, all of those things that began to compound uh, and to weigh on women and men uh, in, in their lives. And they might express that through a shout in church. And so church became this, not only a place to, you know, learn the word and to sing to God and worship, but it was a healing center in the black community. Uh, and so I wouldn't say that it, it it's that still today. Um, and, and that can be a controversial concept, whereas the church had maybe losing its power um, or its stance. Um, but then people may say it's not as necessary as it once was. But I mean, these are all things that, um, you know, people of color use to cope mm. with the racism that we've been talking about and the church was a central part of that. Yeah. We do have a couple of things in the chat. Um, mm -hmm. One Shane said that uh, when you see Chris dance, you know, he grew up in a white evangelical church. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. that is not funny. What in the that world? Is quite funny. <laughs> what in the world? It's craziness. All right. And then, uh, so a question though, one question is that, uh, what are the best methods that helped you in the documentation of collective familial memory that worked more than others? Also, how do you select which narrative to put into a book or a platform and which ones to leave out? Okay. So the, the best methods to collect, uh, yeah. the information from family. So I would say, um, me having started out as a reporter, a newspaper reporter, I began to actually use some of my skills as a reporter and some of my training there, which was to talk to my uncles and aunts. That's where I started um, with trying to find out what happened with my grandfather. So I started with this oral um, 
narrative from them and then use the bits of information, bits of information and factoids that were in their stories to do actual research to find dates and then look at newspaper articles. Uh, and so I began to ask them and to talk to them um, as if they were, you know, interviewees. Um, that people that I was interviewing, um, asking them questions that were broad so that they could kind of tell me what they felt without, you know, just giving a yes or no answer. There were many things that where I didn't know what I didn't know. And so giving them the space to really talk um, and, and share their experience back in the day was crucial. It's something that we don't do a lot of. Um, these days. In fact, I would not have done it had I not been researching this book. And when we don't do that, um, interviewing and talking to our older generation, we lose a lot of the history that is beneficial to us today. So I interviewed them, talked to them and used the information that they gave me to do the research and to gain facts about the story. What was the second question? Oh, See, Chris grew up in a white. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> How do you select which narratives to put into a book or a platform and which ones to leave out? So for me, um, I wanted to stay very uh, narrow and tightly connected to my grandfather's story and how that affected the family. So there, of course, are many more stories that my family has and that we could talk about. I wanted to stay um, within a certain time frame from 1954 through 1959 and with his story. And then, as I said, in the format of the book, I talk about um, my story, which began with my parents' migration. So in my story, um, which kind of interchanges with his, the chapters about him, um, I started with their migration north and them meeting one another and, um, you know, went toward my discovering what his story was. So in my case, I used the time frame, uh, a timeline to narrow down which stories were applicable to what I was writing. Mm. Mm. I, I was going to jump in. There's been a few conversations that we've had and a few comments about um, it's a little outside the scope of your book, Sharon, but the, the, um, I, th I think you stir this question is we, there's the importance of learning the history and other people's history that might be different from ours. Um, I mean, there's a, this whole thing about the truth setting us free and there's this battle over the narrative and how right. we tell history right now in our country. Um, but even as we do that, there's a little bit of folks that are it feels like they, they, they're leaving white evangelicalism, but they're not sure exactly where to go. And the, you know, the historic black church has been such a safe place to, uh, for, you know, people of color, for African-Americans in particular. But, and, and so it's like, you know, for folks like, um, uh, that are leaving white evangelicalism, um, is that work? you know, there's some people that say, take care of your people. Like we didn't vote for Trump. You know, the 80% of white evangelicals did like black women have been the moral conscience in our country, but you know, like, I think there's a lot of folks that are trying to find their way and, and they are trying to engage the toxic versions of um, kind of distorted Christianity. It's a lot of what we're doing at Red Letter Christians. But when it comes to like 
finding a vital spiritual community, you know, finding a place that's got life-giving preaching and that doesn't offend you. <laughs> like there, there's, I think a lot of folks that are looking for that, you know, and I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but that comments come up a couple of times. Well, I, I think that there definitely are those life-giving spiritual communities out there. Um, and I think that many churches that may not be there yet are poised to get there. So, for instance, the church that I mentioned, um, not in Indiana, but the church that I mentioned earlier where I had given that message and there was the leader who called me afterward and whatnot, I truly believe that that church was poised to be better in terms of race relations. It just wasn't there quite yet at that time. And so that was what I was saying in terms of um, wishing that I'd had, uh, that I had pursued a greater conversation. So I definitely think and, and believe that there are places to go that are embracing um, the idea of diversity truly and um, that are not shunning uh, people of color by, and, and I don't say shunning people of color like there's a, a church that's saying, hey, no, no black people allowed. But if you embrace racist policies and don't condemn racist talk, then you're effectively shunning those black people that are in your pews who now feel marginalized and betrayed. Yeah, and yeah. that happened that that I know that there are people who feel and have felt betrayed in evangelical churches. Not that anybody got up and said anything themselves, but just by their practices where they did not um, condemn racism. Yeah. Um, outwardly. So go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's good. I, you know, that's really good. And I, I don't want to get off track from, from you and uh, Sharon, but I, I thought, Chris, you might have some thoughts on that going back to Fort Wayne too, because you're, you know, you, you and I have both been in congregations, whereas white folks were a minority. Um, and, but, but there, there's also a lot of like multi-ethnic churches that are multi-ethnic on stage, but they're, leadership structures and everything else are really white. So it's not just about what you see, but it's like, you know, you got any thoughts on that though? I think you're like, you go a lot of different places. It seems like to try to find that sort of spiritual community and to meet I've friends like said, Sharon, right? Yeah. Martin Luther King said that at 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour in America. And I say that it's oh. that's so segregated because it's segregated like that throughout the whole week. You know, they're really people are, are disconnected. We may rub shoulders, work together or, or, you know, see each other, but we're not in authentic relationships with each other. And so I think that unity in the church should not start on a Sunday. I could care less about integrated church. I want to see Monday through Saturday integrated first and authentic relationships being built first and then watch Sundays take care of themselves. And I think that's one of the things I've been a part of is this, this group of uh, elderly folks, peace grannies and grampies kind of getting together. We're from three different congregations. We have two from United Methodist churches that are predominantly white and, and the AME church predominantly black. And it, it's not just serving together the kids at Southside, but they're really developing authentic relationships with each other. And we literally had meetings at AME where AME folk were 
were able to tell the story of how the AME church was birthed out of racism in the Methodist church. You know, so we were able to do history telling without bashing and, and without telling and be able to hear each other's stories and stuff like that. And, and, and that's happening on Tuesdays. You know, and then we have serving the kids on Wednesdays and we're doing, you know, book studies on Monday. And, you know, we have different things that were happening and we begin and Sundays will take care of themselves with that, I think. And let's see. Uh, OK, uh, so we got to wrap it up. We got a few more minutes. I, you know, I have ton of things always, but uh, I wanted to just give this time for you. Is there any last things you want to tie up or anything we didn't address in your book that you want to let people know about um, in particular? Well, there are just so many different. Yes, there is. (laughs) Things that could be talked about um, with the book. I just want people to know that we all have a story. This is the story that I unearthed in my family. And I think it's an applicable story for this time and where we are in our society now, Uh, because there are so many things that happen in our world and in our lives, microaggressions. I talk in the book about, you know, being chased out of a fashion mine, a store in um, here in Fort Wayne. I talk about um, when I was a young cub reporter having to cover uh, a Klan, a Ku Klux Klan rally rally in downtown St. Petersburg and how I reacted to that with fear and not realizing how to handle that reaction until I began to research this book and realize it was okay to be afraid. in the same way that my grandfather was afraid after being kidnapped. Uh, and so, you know, there were times that I felt inferior as a young girl um, within elementary school, uh, having grown up in inner city uh, Fort Wayne, where, um, you know, going to a, an integrated school and my peers, some of them um, grew up uh, in, you know, more with more, Uh, economic power than my family had. So in telling our stories and researching and thinking about our stories, thinking about our past, there's so much healing in that. And I think we miss out on that when we don't take a look back. And so I hope that with my grandfather's story, it's also my grandmother's story. It's our, it's my mother's story. It's my story. And it's a story that is not so outrageous that we can't all relate to it. My grandfather was not Martin Luther King. He was not Medgar Evers. He was this man, a farmer, a sharecropper, um, a well driller and a preacher in Alabama. And who would have thought um, that the trial that he went through, um, the thing that he went through, is something that would be told in a book in 2023 and that so many people would be able to relate to it, be they relate to it on the side of a person who experienced trauma or racial trauma or cultural trauma, or maybe they're a person who related to it on the other side where they have a history 
of white privilege in their families and they can begin to see the impact of that. Mm. Or maybe they're just living um, today and not realizing their family history, but they live today and they see a nation where so much division is rampant in our country and how we react to things and how we express ourselves and um, the racism that is beginning to be embraced in so many areas and they want to do something about it. And this brings that home to them. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the story is a healing one um, for anyone who reads it. So just to kind of conclude on the last page, you're right now. Uh These these same stories like ours come alive again, not for unnecessary shame, but because they are a leavening agent for healing. The kind of healing that serves each of us when we process the truth of our history. With yeah. true healing, we expose true struggle and overcoming strength. We rest in humility and cherish accountability. And through our success and our failures, we are girded by the sustaining power of faith. And I just, I guess I just want to encourage everybody like that to, to tell your story, no matter how ugly it is, you yeah. know, because we're all part of the human family. And it's important for us to tell the story to, if we're going to truly work towards reconciliation in our communities in all its forms, we have to be willing to face history and to tell our stories and to listen to other people's stories and to also have uh, grace and, 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 and persons for them. So how can people uh, get your book? I want to plug this, John. They got daddy. Buy it. If you haven't gotten this yet, what are you waiting on? This is a great <laughs> book. And, uh, it, and it really, hopefully it'll stir you to be able to tell the story and to be able to uh, uh, to, to move us all in a, in a closer to each other and, and in relationships with each other. And do you have any socials or anything like that, how people can reach out to you? Sure. I have a website, SharonTubbs.com. It has a link to purchase the book. You can also get it on Amazon or through the publisher, IU Press. So I'm on Facebook and Instagram, although I'm not good on Instagram. So. (laughs) Well, thank you, Sharon, for the gift, for for the gift of you, uh, but also the gift, the gift of this book and for telling the story. And I, I hope we get to see more of you at Red Letter Christians. I, I, any way that we can be one more uh, little platform that amplifies your bo- your voice, we're all better off. So anytime you want to write or throw out an idea, but this has been a gift. Um, thank you all for listening in. Thank uh, we'll you. we'll uh, keep following Sharon Tubbs. So get the book, go to her website and you can get it there. Uh, follow her on all the socials and join us next month for book club. Chris, yeah. you sending us out or is that to send out, man? You send us I'll out, send bro. Go ahead, send us out, bro. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. Yeah. Yes. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Yes. God bless you. Absolutely. Bless Peace y'all. everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.